Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Boren. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more, listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, sign up to our email list, and so much more. For daily updates, trivia, shenanigans, and the occasional giveaway, follow us on social media over Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And now, on to this week's episode. Welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. So this episode's coming out a little beyond the bi-weekly schedule I had set up, uh, but for good reason. I recently dropped my first long-format video edit over on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's all about my top five West Virginia cryptids, and so far it's getting some really positive response, which is awesome. Uh, I put all of my uh, normal podcast episodes over there as well, if you didn't know. Uh, but putting together an interesting video is something I've been wanting to do forever. And I do plan to continue to make some as time permits. So podcast listeners, if you haven't checked out my YouTube channel yet, uh, please head on over there and like, comment, and subscribe. And with any luck, I'll get some more videos edited in the near future. Uh, so... March is here, uh, and that means that spring is just around the corner here in the northern hemisphere. At least uh, I, I can't wait for warmer weather at this point. Anyway, there's been some interesting developments in the news that I thought I'd cover in this episode today. So let's jump into that for a moment and see what's going on in the world of weird. So our first story here is uh, this one was a little bit of a trip, and it's actually a couple weeks old at this point, but uh, it, an interesting piece of news nonetheless. So if you're familiar with the Dyatlov Pass story, it's something I've uh, covered before over on Instagram, but basically a group of experienced Russian hikers went missing back in 1959 in the Russian Ural Mountains. And after they went missing, uh, search parties went out and their bodies were found about a month later after they were supposed to return. And the area that they were found in um, was named after the group's leader, uh, so it became known as the Dyatlov Pass. And the circumstances of these hikers' deaths were mysterious. They had uh, strange trauma to their body uh, bodies, and uh, there was even an instance of uh, one of one of the victims having radiation uh, traces being found on their bodies. And over the years, there have been uh, several theories and ideas that have been proposed as to what actually happened to these people. And incidentally, a Smithsonian article dropped uh, back on January 29th claiming that 
This time, the mystery had been solved and had been explained away by a rare type of avalanche. And I've read stories and theories uh, about what happened uh, several times over. And the avalanche theory has been proposed before. Um, and I can't say it totally convinces me, but uh, anyway, the point is a couple of weeks later, uh, coincidentally, after the 62nd anniversary of this incident, uh, it was reported that a group of eight tourists who were trekking out to the Dyatlov Pass had gone missing. And I remember this news dropping and I was like, oh man, I hope these people are okay and it's not like nothing bad happens and it's not some kind of like repeat of history. And like how weird would it be that uh, like right around the anniversary of this incident that another group of hikers mysteriously went missing. <laughs> and as I was following up on the, the story the other day, uh, thankfully and fortunately it turns out that the, uh, this group of uh, hikers uh, were actually, they were an unregistered group from Moscow. And um, during their trip, uh, their families lost contact with them and then reported that the hikers had gone missing uh, when they didn't return home on time. But as it turns out, the tourists got stuck out on a, uh, a lake and, uh, because of unpredictable weather. And, and I guess they had to hunker down. Uh, for a little while, but they did eventually make it home safely. So that story has a happy ending, thankfully. Uh, but definitely, that was a, kind of a weird coincidence of like all these different things happening uh, uh, in regards to that story. So the next big story making the rounds in the UFO world is the recent release of a pilot reporting uh seeing this long cylindrical object shoot over the jetliner he was flying while heading to Phoenix from Cincinnati. And the incident happened while the plane was over the remote northwest corner of New Mexico on Sunday, February 21st. So one of the pilots of the, this American Airlines flight uh, 2292 radioed to air traffic controllers asking if they had any targets in their area and stating that they had something go right over the top of them that looked like a long cylindrical object that almost looked like a cruise missile moving really fast and essentially buzzed the jetliner. Uh, I'm going to play the audio clip of that right now real quick, so check this out. Targets up here. We just had something go right over the top of us. That I hate to say, this looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast that went right over the top of us. So the air traffic controllers responded, saying they couldn't see anything on their radar, and it was also stated that White Sands, a military installation, if you weren't aware of it, uh, they conduct missile tests and. They were, that base is about 400 miles from where this American Airlines flight was during the time of the incident. And White Sands didn't report any tests that happened that day. And interestingly, American Airlines actually came out and confirmed that 
the transmission from this uh, pilot to air traffic controllers did happen and referred any inquiries to the FBI. <laughs> so this is a pretty interesting uh, story and it's still developing. And, um, you know, anything I've ever heard or read about in regards to pilots ever seeing anything unexplainable up in the sky, uh, that it was in their best interest to really, you know, stay quiet about it or they could risk their jobs. And, uh, American Airlines did go on with their press statement that their policy is to neither confirm nor deny any investigations into this incident. But it's a it's a pretty interesting news story, <laughs> to say the least, about uh, a UFO being spotted. So, yeah, uh, if there's any other uh, updates to this in the future, I, I might uh, return to this story, but <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty much the gist of it. All right, so that's the news for this week. Uh, there's a couple other stories that I thought about adding in, but maybe, maybe for another time, because <laughs> uh, today's topic's going to get a little long, and... Uh, Let's just get on into it. Uh, so today I will be covering the story of the Battle of Los Angeles. We just passed the 79th anniversary of this event the other day, and I haven't really done a major UFO topic episode yet, so it seemed like something that would be really fun to cover. Uh, it's definitely one of the most you know, supposed... Inter, uh, interesting and s supposed UFO cases uh, that I've learned about over the years, at least. I mean, there's so many of them, but <laughs> you got to start somewhere. So, uh, so yeah, this is going to be probably a long one. So sit back, uh, put your headphones on, get comfy, and uh, we're going to go deep into this subject. against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes... So, the story goes that in the early hours of February 25th, 1942, a strange event was about to unfold before the eyes of thousands of Los Angeles residents. At this time, the U.S. had recently declared war on Japan, catapulting the country into World War II in both the Pacific and European theaters. The devastating attack on Pearl Harbor uh, had happened just two months prior and was very fresh on everyone's minds. The country was rattled by that day, and subsequent attacks and raids on American vessels off the, the West Coast following Pearl Harbor made Americans worry about an imminent invasion from Japan. And even the day prior to the events that we're about to talk about, uh, a Japanese sub had 
launched artillery shells at an oil field and refinery just off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, which led to the United States Navy issuing a warning of a possible overnight attack. So those who lived on this side of the country at the time certainly had good reason to be on high alert, and any strange thing that uh, might be seen out in the waters or up in the sky, it would definitely be cause for alarm. This brings us now to what happened between the 24th and 25th of February 1942. So at 7.18 p.m. on the 24th, the Office of Naval Intelligence had issued a warning that an attack on mainland California could be expected within the next 10 hours. However, it was lifted before 10.30 p.m. that evening. But little did anyone know that L.A. was about to light up like a volcano. So around 2 a.m. on the 25th, uh, naval radar detected an incoming target about 120 miles off the coast that was headed towards Los Angeles. When this unknown craft was spotted approaching the metropolis, a citywide blackout was ordered by officials and air raid sirens were sounded. This was kind of uh, the standard procedure uh, during the time. In the event that an attack was imminent uh, during the evening hours, it would be harder for uh, enemy planes or, or ships to spot targets uh, for bombardment. So around 2.24 a.m. in the morning, the citizens of L.A. were jolted awake by the sound of these air raid sirens and just under an hour later, at 3.16 a.m., the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade unleashed a barrage of 50 caliber machine gun fire and anti-aircraft shells at the sky. Those who jumped to their windows to see what was happening could see searchlights scanning the night sky and the military shooting at something out there. Apparently, whatever it was seemed impervious to anything being thrown at it. And after an hour or so of gunfire, this supposed object calmly made its way from the Santa Monica area and vanished. The blackout lasted until 7.20 a.m., and when all was said and done, over 1,400 shells were fired by the time the all-clear was ordered. From eyewitness accounts, it seems that most of the, the weaponry um, being dispensed were trained onto a target in the sky that all the searchlights seemed to zero in on, but strangely, no damage appeared to have been, been done to the craft that had trespassed into American airspace. Some witnesses also reported seeing and hearing American fighter planes in the sky that night, but... Interestingly, the military had refuted those claims, stating that none of their aircraft were up there that night, and the only response was from ground forces. In the aftermath, several buildings and vehicles were damaged, and it was reported that five civilians had died as a result of being in this uh, temporary war zone. Uh, apparently, two people had died from uh, stress-induced heart attacks from the uh, continuing uh, chaos that had surrounded the city, and three people had died in car accidents. And I believe that was 
largely because of the blackout and uh, people couldn't see where they were going. That or perhaps uh, falling shrapnel may have uh, been responsible for, for some of that as well. So as for the government's explanation of these events, initially the target of the aerial barrage was thought to be an incoming attack from Japan, which makes sense. Uh, but during the press conference following this event, then Secretary of the Navy, uh, Frank Knox, claimed that it was simply a false alarm. And the following day, the uh, one of the Army's generals, uh, this guy named General George C. Marshall, believed that the incident might have been caused by enemy agents using commercial planes as uh, psychological warfare to create mass panic in America. And to further add to uh, confusion with uh, some differing explanations as to what happened, apparently the War Department issued a statement saying that there were between 100 and 500 planes that were flying around Los Angeles that night, which directly contradicted statements that were made by the Navy saying that they had no planes up in the sky that night, uh, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, and some press outlets at the time apparently began to suspect that there might have been some kind of cover-up of the truth based on the varying explanations provided. And an editorial in the Long Beach Independent wrote that, uh, quote, there is a mysterious reticence about this whole affair, and it appears that some form of censorship is trying to halt discussion on the matter. So it seems that, you know, not everyone was on board with the official explanation uh, about the events that transpired that night, which is kind of interesting. While the press initially questioned why the military would spend an hour firing off artillery rounds over nothing, there was barely any press coverage of it after the fact, which does make sense given the circumstances of the time. And, and within you know a week or two, this whole thing was largely kind of forgotten. You know, the war was ramping up and, you know, some random, uh, a supposed attack that was, you know, the official explanation was, oh, it's just a false alarm. <laughs> you know, makes sense that people might not really, uh, want to keep reporting on it. Um, but interestingly, most witnesses present that actually saw everything going down that night, um, weren't even considered credible by, by the press, um, or officials on, on the matter, which seems uh, a little bit preposterous. I mean, you know, what better way to find out what actually, uh, was in the sky that night that was being shot at. And, you know, other than to, you know, to record testimony from people who actually witnessed it firsthand seems kind of silly, I guess. Uh, but, you know, perhaps there was an effort to quell panic uh, since it was a wartime after all and and nerves were, were very high, uh, seeing as it was, you know, just the beginning of America entering the Second World War. Um, and I can, that does make sense and I can understand that, um, that viewpoint on that for sure. 
Uh, but in the end, I think it's definitely an important question to ask, you know, why go to the trouble if, uh, you know, only for it to result in, uh, the death of your own citizens and, and, uh, damage to, you know, buildings and businesses and all that. <laughs> uh, so the next day, uh, after the event, the infamous, uh, photo was released, you know, the one that shows all the searchlights, uh, fixed onto some saucer looking object in the sky or so it seems. So at the time, you know, no one really, UFOs weren't really, <laughs> and alien beings weren't in, you know, the mass public conscious at the time. So no one was thinking of, of UFOs or beings from another world. The term flying saucer wouldn't even be coined for another five years, uh, which happened after uh, Kenneth Arnold had his infamous sighting and the press had called what he saw flying saucers. And the little green men uh, weren't even, that coin uh, term wasn't coined until the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins incident in Kentucky in 1955. <laughs> so, you know, this stuff was all just kind of, you know, not even in, in anyone's minds at that point. And being that the U.S. was at war with Japan, most people had guessed that the craft, if there really was one, belonged to the Japanese. And, and some apparently had speculated that it might have been some new aircraft that was launched from a type of Japanese super sub uh, that Japan, uh, Japan had designed to carry aircraft with it and so they could launch it. Um, <laughs> launch planes off of it. Uh, I checked out a, a photo of one and it was, uh, you know, a pretty interesting design for uh, a submarine. So uh, to give you an idea of the, the public and military state of mind during this time, you know, the fears and paranoia of another Japanese attack or even invasion on the mainland U.S., um, after Pearl Harbor was very high. In Juneau, Alaska, residents were told to cover up windows at night uh, for nightly blackouts after rumors that Japanese subs were patrolling the Alaskan coast. And there were further rumors that uh, an enemy aircraft carrier was off the coast of San Francisco, and this caused Oakland to close all its schools and issue a blackout. Radio silence was ordered among coastal cities regularly, and other cities like Seattle also called for blackouts um, as well uh, for buildings and vehicles. And in Seattle, those uh, this is an uh, interesting uh, piece of history. Those who um, didn't comply wound up having their businesses and cars smashed by mobs of angry people. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's just tensions were high <laughs> all, all, all along the coast. The paranoia ran so deep that often uh, floating logs and whales in the ocean were frequently mistaken uh, for Japanese submarines. And it's just like people were were freaking out. And it's it must have been a very, very stressful uh, period in history to, to be alive. 
you know, because no one knew what was going to happen next. Um, and fun fact, <laughs> despite all this doom and gloom, um, rumors of the, um, the threats actually resulted in uh, 500 troops being stationed in Walt Disney Studios in Burbank to defend against sabotage from, uh, uh, from sabotage from enemy agents or from um, aerial bombardment. Um, and so this fear and paranoia wasn't without good reason as the Japanese already had attacked several American merchant ships off the West Coast in the following months after Pearl Harbor. So UFOs, why do ufologists believe that this was a cover-up of a UFO event? You know, that's kind of like the big thing on all the shows that you see on TV and History Channel and, and whatnot. It, it wasn't until several years later that this event became known as the Battle of Los Angeles, um, or sometimes it's referred to as the Great Los Angeles Air Raid. But, you know, more often than not, Battle of L.A. <laughs> and to many in the UFO community, it's kind of regarded uh, by some, at least, to be a precursor event to the modern UFO phenomenon. And this seems to be largely due to the, uh, the photo that was released that night by the Los Angeles Times and the apparent uh, dismissal of the military, uh, along with uh, varying explanations of, of what had happened that night. Um, you know, they you know, dispensed all this ordinance up into the sky and then it was just nothing to see here. Go about your business kind of thing. Um, and as time went on, researchers scrutinized the photos and some began to believe they were able to see that typical flying saucer shape within the converging light beams. And to them, it seemed kind of like a smoking gun, uh, proving that there was indeed something in the sky that night that might not have been ours. But as with anything, you know, it's important to mention that uh, with photos, at least uh, in, news, in newsprint, prior to releasing them, it is standard practice to retouch photos to improve levels for black and white uh, printing processes. Um, can confirm, uh, <laughs> I've done graphic design for a very long time, <laughs> and uh, that is, you know, a standard practice even today. And many skeptics will often point to that fact and go on to claim that any object that is, you know, quote, seen in the lights is simply an artifact of the retouching process. Uh, and the LA Times did run their story with a retouched version of the iconic photo, uh, which is a lot more refined than the original. It's certainly possible that the photo could be a case of people seeing what they want to see. And, you know, I, I, there is a photo floating around on the internet that shows the original untouched photo. And it's definitely a lot less detailed, a lot more blown out due to, you know, being, uh, nighttime exposure and all that. So there was, there was some, some work done to this, this photo, but you know, there, there it's possible there could still be something there. Um, another interesting point while I was researching this is that, uh, apparently it seems that 
the original negative of the photo is apparently missing. Uh, and this was discovered by a UFO researcher, uh, Ben Hansen, who was on Fact or Faked uh, during his own research into the Battle of L.A. And he found that the negative stored in the Los Angeles Times archive was actually a copy and not the original. So there could be some implications there that you know, the original was either you know destroyed or it's kept somewhere <laughs> in a secret vault and it has some interesting details that uh, aren't meant to be seen by the public. Who knows? You know, that's just speculation. <laughs> as far as explanations go, in 1949, the United States Coast Artillery Association believed the object that triggered the barrage of uh, gunfire and artillery was a meteorological balloon. And it apparently there was one that was supposedly sent up in the skies over Los Angeles that night around 1 a.m., just about a little over uh, an hour before air raid sirens were sounded. And due to war nerves, as soon as one person started shooting, everyone stationed in the defensive batteries around Los Angeles County open fire too. Uh, so this was apparently backed up again in 1983 by the office of air force history. And they had produced an analysis of the evidence, which, um, their opinion, uh, also leaned towards a balloon being the culprit as of the object in the sky that was being shot at. Uh, and despite the official story, you know, mostly making sense and checking out many still question and disagree with the official explanation and particularly those who claimed to have had a close up view of the object that was being fired upon that night. So now we're going to get into a little bit of uh, witness testimony. One of the witnesses who claimed to have seen this object in the sky that night uh, was a volunteer air raid warden uh, by the name of Katie. I don't have a, a last name, unfortunately. <laughs> All I have is Katie. <laughs> but according to her story, uh, that night she was woken up by a phone call from her air warden supervisor. And at that point, she then looked out uh, the window of her home and um, had a clear view of a shining pale orange uh, craft hovering motionless in the sky over Los Angeles. She also recalled witnessing squadrons of American fighter planes attempting to engage the craft and also went on to explain that anytime they attempted to attack, these planes had to retreat since each volley of ammunition they flung at the object didn't really seem to do anything and... <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like, uh, this, you know, that, that scene in, uh, Independence Day where, uh, you know, they're doing a, an attack on, on the alien, uh, city destroyer ship and they fire their missiles and it's like shields up for the alien ship and <laughs> no effect. And they all have to kind of break away before they, they, uh, crash into the ship or something, you know? <laughs> A further witness, uh, retired anthropology professor C. Scott Littleton, was also present that night. He was only 13 at the time, 
And his father was actually one of the air raid wardens. And he believes that um, what, you know, he witnessed (laughs) was legitimate. Uh, He claimed that he saw the object uh, and described it as being a distinct oval shape. And in his words, it looked like a lozenge. And he watched the anti-aircraft shells exploding around it and nothing had any effect on this object whatsoever. And much like Katie's story, Littleton also claimed that he had witnessed squadrons of planes in the sky that night. And despite the official story that there were none, uh, but this time um, he had apparently seen them follow the craft as it made its way off towards the ocean uh, before vanishing after the the volley of anti-aircraft uh, artillery that was firing into the sky for an hour. <laughs> um, Littleton also cast doubt on the weather balloon explanation, and according to him, the only nearby facility that housed them was in El Segundo, uh, just south of Santa Monica. So really not too far away, but he claimed that if that explanation was true the balloon would have had to have floated north towards Santa Monica and then moved in a completely different direction, which, according to him, didn't fit the normal characteristics of balloon movement. Um, But, you know, I'm not entirely sure of, you know, the wind patterns around L.A. and and the exact uh, (laughs) movements of weather balloons and how they're affected by that. So, you know, take that with a a little bit of a, a grain of salt. Uh, later on in um, in 1947, which was you know the summer of the infamous uh, Roswell crash in New Mexico, uh, along with um, Kenneth Arnold's sightings in Washington, a uh, witness account was released by uh, Fate Magazine's July issue that summer, and this one is pretty interesting. Uh, and the witness goes on to say, "quote." The airy lights were behaving strangely. They seemed to be navigating mostly on a level plane at that moment, that is, not rising up from the ground in an arc or trajectory, or in a straight line and then falling back down to earth, but appearing from nowhere and then zigzagging from side to side. Some disappeared, not diminishing in brilliance or fading away gradually, but just vanishing instantaneously into the night. Others remained pretty much on the same level, and we could only guess their elevation to be around 10,000 feet, but some of them dived earthward only to rise again, mix and play tag with about 30 to 40 others moving so fast that they couldn't be counted accurately. Now that's a pretty wild statement uh, by this particular witness who was allegedly there that night. And if true, uh, would seem to add some credibility that there was more going on that night than we uh, have been let on to know about, uh, you know, but then again, you know, it could be someone who's embellishing or, or making the whole thing up. We really don't know a hundred percent for sure. Uh, so, you know, this event is really kind of, again, considered to be a precursor UFO event, uh, in the history of this subject. And I can kind of see why, um, 
with all the, the, the strangeness surrounding the explanations and the supposed craft and the witness testimony. Um, but you know, the, the official explanations could also, uh, make sense as well. You know, I, I think this is kind of just a, uh, a 50 50 on, on whether or not this case is, is, uh, a true genuine UFO case versus just a, a rational explanation. So I think this is where I'm going to wrap up the story on the battle of Los Angeles. And again, it seems like there's, you know, a perfectly r- rational explanation for the events that happened that night. But, you know, the other, the other half of it, after reading about and researching the eyewitness accounts, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, you know, maybe some of these folks were making things up, but then again, maybe they were telling the truth and there really was some kind of cover up. You know, what do you guys think? Uh, if you can head over to my Instagram or, or Facebook and post a comment um, on my announcement post for this episode, uh, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Okay, thanks everyone for listening and making it to the end of the episode. I probably could have kept going for a little bit, <laughs> but yeah, I hope you guys loved the uh, the deep dive into this. I've known of the story for years, and it's been on so many different UFO shows and documentaries before, but usually it's kind of like a, a brief touch on the subject and, you know, one of the, the talking head personalities just saying like, oh, this is definitely, <laughs> you know, UFO uh, event for sure, but um, they usually don't go into much more detail uh, beyond that. And definitely I, I feel like I've never really heard or, uh, anyone uh, talk about the circumstances that were leading up to the battle and just like how shook that, uh, America was following the, the Pearl Harbor attacks and, and, you know, how jittery people were and ready to pull the trigger on, on anything. <laughs> and, you know, all the other theories and details out there, you know, it's, it's, uh, I feel like I learned quite a bit of new stuff about this subject and I hope you all, you all did too. So as I wrap up the episode, uh, I just wanted to give a a quick thank you to everyone who's been listening to my podcast. And also again, to those of you who checked out my first YouTube edit, um, please check it out. If you haven't yet, it would be super helpful. Uh, and I'd be very grateful for, uh, anyone who, who checks it out. Um, so the podcast is pushing about 400 downloads now as I'm recording this, which is amazing. And it's almost like double of what it was <laughs> during, uh, the release of my last episode on the Mokion monster. Um, so if you like the Strangeology podcast, it would help me out a lot if you, uh, share it with family and friends, uh, to get the word out, you know, especially, uh, people who are, are into this kind of subject stuff, you know, post on, on forums, on discord groups, whatever, uh, it would help me out a lot and I'd super appreciate it. Also, Strangeology now has listeners in 14 countries. Uh, I'm just going to list them off real quick here. Uh, the U S the UK, Ireland, Canada, 
Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, Austria, Mexico, Argentina, Morocco, South Africa, and Japan. This is really awesome. So thank you all for listening wherever you are. Uh, it seems like there's new new listeners in new countries all the time. So really, you're really, really, really awesome. In <laughs> uh, other news, my interview with Bo over at the Bump Podcast just dropped the other day. So um, if you're not familiar with his podcast, um, it would be great if you could go check that out. Um, we uh, get into topics uh, like why I got into uh, doing what I do with Strangeology and some personal experiences. So it's a pretty uh, fun episode, lots of interesting stuff that we <laughs> talked about. Uh, and if you haven't yet, please make sure to give me a follow uh, over on my social media. Uh, Instagram's still the main base of my social media operations, but you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and now TikTok as well. Um, so things get, uh, I barely know how to use TikTok still, <laughs> but things get pretty wild over there. Uh, and it's, it's been pretty fun. Oh, and you know, I've also plugged it a few times already, but, um, would super appreciate it if you subscribed to my YouTube channel too, which is, uh, the <laughs> topic of, uh, my next merch giveaway. So that's happening now. And, uh, make sure to head on over to my Instagram to go check out the details on that. It's going to be running uh, between March 1st and March 8th. So definitely uh, enter and uh, you could win some cool stuff. Um, and also I have a few new items in my, my Etsy shop as well. Uh, so would definitely uh, be helpful if you check that out, uh, helps me out a lot and helps keep this uh, podcast afloat and keeps the lights on. Um, all right. So that's about it for now. Uh, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, and as always, take care of yourselves and each other. Have a great day and uh, keep it strange, guys. <laughs>